When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody, and welcome back once again to Dirty Sexy History. My name is Jessica Kale, and this week I have the honor of welcoming back to the show our very good friend and fan favorite, Violet Fenn. Violet's new book, Secrets and Scandals in Regency Britain, Sex, Drugs, and Proxy Rule, is out now. It is always so fun to talk to Violet, and I was really excited to get to ask her about the new book. Now, because I write historical romance, and we have so many great authors and readers in the audience, we decided to focus on some more Regency romance-adjacent subjects, but the book covers a lot more than that. So if you are interested in the darker side of the Regency period, you're definitely going to want to check it out. So without further delay, here's our interview with the fabulous Violet Fenn. Well, welcome back, Violet. We're so glad to have you. Thank you very much. Can I just, before we start, give a shout out to my friend Dan Sumption's daughter, Lola, who apparently is a massive fan of this show. I don't even know Lola, but he messaged me to say, oh, this is great podcast. You should listen to it. My daughter loves it. Oh and my like, gosh, that's crazy. Like, oh my God, that's my mate. Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> Hi, Lola. Thank you so much for listening. Oh my goodness. I know it's a small world, isn't it? Oh, that's awesome. Well, we're so glad to hear it. And we're so glad to have you back. Uh, now, I've just been reading your new book, uh, Secrets and Scandals in Regency Britain, Sex, Drugs and Proxy Rule. How's that for a great title? It's not the best. I can't claim credit for that. My mate Lucy came up with that one. And it's just the best title I will ever have on a book cover, I think. <laughs> it's a fantastic title. It's really, <laughs> really good. Now, um, speaking of scandal, though, but I was trying to think of the questions I wanted to ask you. This is the first one that came to mind. So I've been, you know, obviously a huge fan of historical romance, period dramas, all of that for years and years and years. And one of the things that always comes up in these Regency stories is this idea of scandal. You know, it's, it's central to the plot of a lot of these stories. And that's fine. You know, they're fun. But why is scandal such a big deal? That, that's what I want to know. Now, I'm, I'm kind of a... Um, <laughs> I'm a very contrary person. So the idea of scandal just makes me like want to like do it twice and take pictures like, but, but yeah. was this a big deal for people? Yeah, but I think you're right. I mean, I'm very much like you on this. You know, I think scandal is something it's like I, I give talks on shame and how shame only exists if other you allow other people to do it you know you're giving them the power and and scandal's kind of the same thing you're only doing something scandalous if somebody else decides it's scandalous um and I think it's always been there really I mean you could go back to you know first recorded history somebody would have done something deemed as scandalous by somebody else you know um I think in the regency it probably affected weirdly the upper middle and upper classes maybe more because a scandal generally is a social, cultural sort of casting out, isn't it? You know, um, and they have got more opportunity to commit a scandal and more opportunity, to, more things to lose from it socially. Just, do, do you see what I mean? So poorer people in the Regency, as with a lot of, of other eras, almost had more freedom because you don't have the time to police other people when you're just busy surviving. 
Mm-hmm. If if you're wealthy and you're um, and, and you're having everything done for you, you've got plenty of time to judge other people. So yeah, it was a massive thing, but probably only in certain circles. It, it, it existed everywhere as it always did, but I think at this point, it's it's the people in the higher echelons of society that probably felt it more. Right, right. And were there like any real world consequences for this kind of scandal, or is it just kind of people looking down on you? No, there always is. No, there always is. And it depends, as you said, it depends on the person, how they take the scandal. Do you know what I mean? It depends. Um, so you've got Byron, who you would expect to be quite um, feisty against this sort of stuff, you know, but even he sort of escaped to the continent because of scandal in England. So even at his level of fame and fortune, clearly scandal was enough to send him running out. Of the And the Shelleys did the same as well. Um, but a lot of the times you find it's their own families that are doing that. You know, Byron still had his fans. You still had the Byron maniacs, as, as Annabella, Annabella Middlebank called them. So, so it was his own family that was casting him out sort of thing. And the same with the Shelleys, you know, it, it was um, the, the, fa- the family that were casting them out. So I think it's, um, it has massive ramifications to those people who are worried about what people think. I think you and I would have lasted about five minutes in the Regency. <laughs> For sure. Oh, my goodness. Wow. OK, so, um, you know, these days, you know, people who are really big fans of this era, they have these very set ideas about like what was done or not done, you know, in, in this kind of period. Uh, but the more that you, you read about the Regency, and I'm sure you found this, too, the more you realize that the rules really didn't apply to everybody. So to what extent were the, the wealthier people like above the law? Well, quite a lot, actually, but not for the reasons you might think. Um, firstly, in Britain, because obviously most of my books concentrate on Britain, um, the law didn't exist in the form it does now. We had no local government until 1888. So at this point, you still got like quarterly assizes or whatever, and there was no police force. So any if a crime was committed against you, it's up to you to hire somebody to go and find them and, and bring them to justice sort of thing. So firstly, in, if a crime is committed against you, you've got to have money in order to pursue the person who's committed that crime. But if you were the one committing the crime and you ended up, because you could end up in prison very easily, you know, very easily. Um, we were talking, this is the era of the bloody code. You know, there was 200 crimes by the end of the century, by the end of the 1700s that had carried the death penalty. Um, so you could end up in deep political, you know, legal water very, very easily. That said, I, th- I think I remember the figure is something like 60% of capital crimes were commuted by the judge because there were so many of them, you know, you'd be hanging people left, right and centre. So something like 60% were commuted to transportation, imprisonment or whatever. Um, and, and it didn't matter if you class in society at this point, really, because you could it was a capital offence to steal something worth more than five shillings. Now that's um, 25 pence in, in current money. So with not, I think I worked out it's about five or 10 pounds. So equivalent in dollars roughly now. So Jane Austen's aunt ended up in court for supposedly stealing something. She was acquitted eventually, but she was in prison. She was in prison, but this is a good illustration of how the wealthier dealt with it because at this point you could pay money to live in better circumstances in prison because your food, you only got the very, very basics. So if you were poor and or had no family, you got the basics and you lived or died or whatever on your cold stone floor. 
if you were wealthier, as Jane Perrett, uh, Jane Austen's aunt was, um, you could pay to either have extra food. I think she paid to live with the warder and his wife is what she paid to do. Or other people pay to live within what they call the rules, which is an external boundary outside of the prison. And it's just housing, normal housing. But as long as you stayed within the boundary of the, what they called the rules, um, you could live outside the prison. But you had to have money to do that. So, and obviously the wealthy, if they thought they were going to get caught for something, could scarper. You know, you've got the money. You can go and live. You can do a Byron. You can go and live on the continent. You know that that sort of thing. So, because we have to remember that, you know, when when scandal hits him. He'd been accused of um, incest for having a, a daughter with his stepsister. Um, he'd been accused of buggery and um, homosexuality. Now, ironically, it was only the homosexuality that was the criminal offence at that point. Um, so I, the irony, when you look back <laughs> on it, you know, yeah, you can, have, you can have kids with your sister, you know, you can go and do whatever with your wife, whether she likes it or not, but how dare you fancy another man? Um, mm -hmm. You know, so so that's but he had the money to go, you know, so he, it, it had become a sort of legal thing and he was pushing his luck. And that's why he left in the end. So, yeah, it's it, um, you could definitely buy your way into a nicer circumstances, whatever you did, I think, is, is the gist of it, really. Oh, right. OK. Now, uh, one of the things that struck me was you were mentioning in some of the earlier chapters about how if somebody has done a crime to you, you know, it's it's basically up to you to fund going after them. So mm. for for the poor people, you know, if, if somebody had stolen their things or had done whatever to them, they're not likely to see justice for that because they can't personally afford it. Um, now, that's that's a real big double standard there. Um, what do you think about that? Well, apart from anything else, it was ripe for corruption anyway, because you mm -hmm. had what you call the thief takers. Um, and they would, now was it Jonathan Wilde? Was he one of, I think that's, it was Jonathan Wilde. Um, you'd have the thief takers who were professional, almost detectives. You know, they'd go after the person, you'd hire them, they'd go after the person who's stolen your things or whatever. But then quite often they would find the, th the thief and take money off them to conveniently not find them. So right. they were... They were taking money to go and find them and then taking a bribe not to find them. So they were making the money on both sides. Um, so the whole system was corrupt. And, and because, as I said, at this point, there was no set infrastructure for the legal system. We had overarching legal systems, you know, but it was still run by the king's bench. You know, it still went back to the monarchy at this point. Um, so the, the fingers of the law didn't quite reach out into, into the suburbs or to the you know, the more industrial new cities and things like that and they were kind of left themselves so yeah there is a massive massive double standard because if you were poor you 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 literally fended for yourself I mean and that did go on for a very long time and that historically that had been happening for a long time um but there was corruption the same as there has always been ever since you know even when you've got a legal system it's corrupt and you know it always is going to be at a certain level you'd hope these days it's a little bit more controlled it's, it doesn't always look like that but um yeah it it wasn't a good time to be poor none right. of it's a good time to be poor ever no, it never is but in particular like this time uh, you know people look at it as this kind of beautiful golden age but I suppose maybe that applies if you're really rich but for everybody else 
But, it, but the thing is, we have this tendency to look back at things as if it's a cinematic experience, you know? Mm. So we think, yeah, this looks marvellous, and look at the frocks and this, that and the other, but those dresses would have stunk, you know? You couldn't be washing them. You, you, you'd have your chemise or whatever underneath and you'd wash that, but they still haven't invented deodorant and hot running water. You know, things were not going to be fragrant. And... Um, you know, and, and the streets were dirty. Your, your dresses would be dirty by the time you've walked down the street. It, it's none of it, even if you're wealthy, is glamorous in the way that we look at it now. You know, mm. it's and the, 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 of course they polish it up. We wouldn't watch it. You know, <laughs> it, if it was a bit grim, you'd be like, oh God, it's like EastEnders bit in the 1700s. You know, why would I watch this? You know, what, why? Why? So what we do is we watch kind of the Dallas and Dynasty of the 1700s, don't we? You know. Um, because we just see the fancy bits you don't see the cholera epidemics and the you know and the terrible lack of sanitation and the and the lack of medicine so there's an awful lot of rose tinted glasses anyway but so it wasn't great for anybody it really you know it wasn't um but it was less awful for some and usually the ones who had the money yeah for definite my goodness. Now you have some really fantastic stories in here. You cover so many interesting people, a lot of really incredible lives. And of course, most of them were very tragically short. But uh, one of them that uh, stood out to me the most actually was uh, your story about Lady Hamilton, who of course was Nelson's mistress. Now, there's quite a lot more to her story than I realized. So can you tell us how she ended up marrying William Hamilton in the first place? Oh, Emma, Emma is just a babe, isn't she? I mean, the life she led and even I, I mean, I knew the basis of her story because I, I approached a lot of these books knowing the basis of the stories and knowing who I want to include. But invariably you find all this stuff that you didn't know. I mean, um, so she wasn't called Emma at all. Um, she was born Amy Hart in um, Harden, and she lived in Harden in North Wales, which as anyone knows me and my beloved Gladstone's library, that's where Gladstone's is, it's in Harden. And um, she went to London, her mum ran away basically out of desperation, I think, when she was very young and went to London. And Amy, Amy Lyon, um, followed her when she was quite young. And I'm not sure, they didn't stay together. She, I think she found her mother, but they didn't stay together. But Amy got a job um, as a, theatre maid helping the actresses and also as a dancer and so she was in the West End working as um, a theatre assistant and she, she's still Amy Leon at the time and um, she ends up working at the Temple of Health and if people don't know the Temple of Health it was um, run by a chap called James Graham and it was a pseudo-scientific place where you could go and discuss the wonders of the human body and you know and they'd he'd have these young girls standing naked for you to look at and you know things like this and his famous um, invention was the celestial bed which was supposed to help conception you could hire the celestial bed in order to get it on and attempt it, it some of it was kind of clever the bed raised up at the end to keep the woman's feet up at, afterwards to hold <laughs> He kind of had the right idea, but there was far more drapes and ornate stuff than he ever needed, really. He, he made a real meal out of this. Um, and Amy um, worked there. You know, they, they'd sort of pose on the celestial bed and stuff like that. And then she was hired. I mean, the, the assumption by this point is that she's doing what we would now see as escort work on the side, you know, which wouldn't be a surprise at all. And she was hired by a chap called Harry Fanshawe. Now, anyone reads the book, if you don't know British surnames, they're ridiculous. Fanshawe is spelt Featherstone Huff, but we pronounced it Fanshawe. So 
yeah it's so and, and, you know, British people you know we've never seen a surname we can't add three syllables to and then pronounce it completely differently um so she was hired for Harry Fanshawe's stag do as as the entertainment and this stag do lasted 18 months at a house in the countryside so he'd planned this wedding a long way in advance clearly um and she was there long enough. I mean, she, she was hired to be like the mistress of the house for the duration of this 18-month stag party. Um, and she was his mistress during this time as well. He was paying for her company. And her duties included dancing naked on the table whilst they all ate their dinners and things like this. Um, and she obviously ended up in this sort of utterly imbalanced relationship with Harry Fanshawe. Um, and the inevitable happened and she got pregnant at which point Fanshawe's like, oh, no, this is my stag do. I'm going to get married. I can't, you know, um, the stripper's up the duff. What are we going to do? At which point um, Charles Greville, who was a friend of his, this is such a complicated story as well, you know, and I'm trying, <laughs> this, is, this is me making it simple. So she's then taken in by Charles Greville, who's Fanshawe's friend, um, who does a bit of a Henry Higgins on her. It's all a bit My Fair Lady. He decides to turn her into a lady because he, he's quite taken with her, but she needs to fit in with society. So he improves her speaking skills, her language, her deportment. He change, And this is when he changes her name. So she goes from Emily, Emily, Amy Leon to Emma Hart um, because that fits in with society more. So she's with Greville and she, from what I can make out really is very fond of Greville and she thinks this is it but Greville realizes fairly rapidly that he's actually going to have to marry for money and Emma by this point has not got any money because she's a dancing girl um so he does the obvious thing of a gentleman of, of that era would do and he palms her off on his elderly uncle um <laughs> Because of course, of course, of course, that's what you do. So William Hamilton was a um, British consul. Uh, was at the British consulate in Naples, I think. This is from memory. Um, and he, his wife had died. He was a widower, and he was quite lonely. And Charles Greville knew this, and he's like, "Oh, he'll quite appreciate my pseudo wife." So he sent. Emma and her mother, weirdly, um, they were, they were re reconciled at this point, over for a holiday to stay with William Hamilton. And But William Hamilton was expecting her to come and, and he knew the intention of Greville's intention. He basically said, hi, uncle, will you give me some money in return for my girlfriend? So mm, it's all very, very dodgy. William Hamilton actually appears to be a really nice bloke. You know, he he may it may have happened under very dodgy circumstances, but he meant well. Um, and it took months for Emma to realise his motives weren't just this benevolent uncle, that she was expected to eventually be his partner and or wife. But he didn't seem to push any of this on her. You know, he was really, it, it, this, is, this is all a bit romantic from his part. He's trying to persuade her to love him genuinely. Um, so... She found out, I think she'd been there six months before it twigged that maybe her boyfriend isn't coming and the old uncle is the new man. Um, at which point she, in her own words, cried for days and, you know, was beside herself. But then she was, I mean, she was pragmatic, was Emma. You know, she's in this situation, she's got to do something with it. So she decided to crack on and um, make the most of, of being with William Hamilton. And I'm not quite sure how she went from, oh, my God, I can't, this can't be happening, whatever, to, all right, you'll, you'll do for now at any port in a storm sort of thing. 
but she managed it and they actually ended up very happy um so she was with William Hamilton as, and as we said she's a he's a lot older than her at which point she meets that she starts going out in society there's a story about how she was such a, an amazing pian- pianist that Mozart was a gog you know at, at her playing whether that's quite true I don't know but then Mozart was 13 or 14 at that point so he was child prodigy but um but he certainly met her and uh, so she was doing the rounds of society and then she met Nelson you know and Nelson was quite the dapper chap at the time and he's high up in the navy and and all this sort of thing and Nelson is also married um because this this is what happens isn't it Nelson's also married but this didn't seem to bother anybody um to a lady called Fanny and he did actually dump his wife quite cruelly he she told him to choose between her and Emma and Nelson chose Emma um and just disappeared and left her um but weirdly they ended up in this very benign sort of menage a trois William Hamilton knew what was going on between Emma and Nelson and facilitated it to, to quite some extent um, to the point where whilst Nelson was at sea at one point, um, Hamilton knew there was a story during the, the round of the gossips that um, the Prince of Wales was in love with Emma. And he actually wrote to Nelson to say not to worry about it. She's being true to you. And this is his wife, you know. Wow. I know, I know. I mean, talk about the upper classes being weird. I mean, but it, it worked. You know, it worked. They travelled back when he eventually... Um, finished his um campaign and, and I lose that's where I have lost track now of which campaign was where you know before Trafalgar um but he finished a campaign and they they um uh, oh and in the meantime she also got awarded the um Malta Cross the Maltese Cross um for helping having words with the Spanish and and saving the people of Malta it's a very long and convoluted political story um but she was never allowed to wear it because she was never allowed to be lady because the king had to agree that she could be a lady because it was from a different country and he refused to give her permission because sexist. So, but she she was a lady in her own right. She's Lady Emma Hamilton because of William Hamilton. But she, what people a lot don't know is she was awarded the Maltese cross. She's a lady in her own right, but she was never formally allowed to use it. So the three of them travel back across Europe together. They travel by horse and carriage, I think, and um, came back, fated all the way, thought this was going to be marvellous. They go back to Britain and everyone would understand how marvellous Nelson was and that Emma was brilliant. And they all ignored Emma. You know, she got cut off, basically. So Nelson, being quite the gentleman, and this is such a weirdly understanding situation, bought a house for the three of them. And the three of them lived together. Um, presumably William was in the spare room. I'm not sure what was happening at this point. And, um, and yeah, so Emma had a mad time of it. And so obviously it's a very long convoluted story. It's why it's the longest section in the book. And that was me cutting it back down as much as I could. And partly I just got obsessed with Emma. Also, and the way she was treated because William died and Emma lived with Nelson, but they couldn't live together because they weren't married. So they had to have, because scandal again, we go back to scandal. So they had to keep separate houses and she didn't have the money to do that. So the assumption was Nelson would win at Trafalgar, come back with his booty, there'd be enough money for everybody. And of course he died. So there was no money. And in the meantime, on the assumption of this money, she'd been actually funding his family quite a lot. Um, out of money she didn't have and then the minute he died everybody sort of dropped her 
um, his last will and testament, which I've got a very long copy of somewhere, and it goes on, but he does state in it that the British government should look after Emma. Um, and it was his dying wish that they look after Emma and their daughter, because they had a daughter called Horatia at this point as well. And um, and they didn't. They just ignored it. I think the only thing she had, she was given his jacket. Um, he, she was supposed to have all of his belongings. They give everything to his brother. So um, she, she was left with nothing. And un- unfortunately, she died um, an alcoholic in Calais not long after. She was quite young. I think she was only in her 30s or 40s by then. Um, so, yeah, Emma Hamilton, le- you know, lived one hell of a life and in the weirdest sort of modern setup as well. You know, that's the sort of thing you'd understand today. But so, you can, so there, you can imagine the levels of scandal that were being talked about in the background, because this is, you know, a great big naval hero and one of one of the, the lords of the country, and and this young girl who sort of turned up and, but yeah, she was parcelled around basically, and she did what she could, and still ended up penniless. So, yeah, I bear a lot of grudges for Emma, you know. Yeah. I'm not surprised. Um, it's it's almost a Cinderella story, and then it kind of goes really badly wrong. It um, would be a brilliant Cinderella story if she didn't die penniless and and in an awful state at the end. Yeah, it but sort of not, went there and then <laughs> petered out really badly. Yeah. Oh my goodness! But yeah, what an absolutely incredible person. So, like, cross class marriage did happen. People did sometimes marry people who were, you know, of a lower class than they were. How would that usually work? Was that at all common? There's not a great deal of records of that sort of relationship, um, unless they are people of note, you know, as in sort of the Hamiltons. It certainly happened. It certainly happened. As far as I've ever been able to make out, it's mostly men marrying younger, poorer women. Kelsapries, um, same as it ever was, isn't it? But for, for the same reasons as William married Emma, you know, they are in that situation. The woman is poor or perhaps pregnant or whatever and, and needs help. And the man saves the day by marrying her. Um, I'm trying not to say all this through gritted teeth. But it's it happened. It only generally happened if one party, and it was usually a man, had an awful lot of money and usually was being forced to do it. Um, I don't know many where, I haven't found one where you could say it was a love match and they just, you know, would love across the divide or whatever. But what we have to remember is the rec- there aren't records, you know, there aren't records like there are today. And I say this to everybody when we talk about things this old. I mean, you know this yourself that you know just because it isn't written down doesn't mean it didn't happen but it doesn't mean it did happen and if it was things that perhaps were scandalous you wouldn't write it down anyway for risk of what might socially happen to you if if people find out so it, it is really difficult to tell but what I always say about anything in any era is if we're doing it now they were doing it then mm-hmm. you know we're, we're not unique so yeah there will have been cross cross cultural relationships even if they didn't end up getting married they would have been you know there, there were I'm sure there are plenty of ladies of the manor who were having it away with the the groomsmen around the back you know and stuff like that and plenty of children that were passed off as the husbands that went there's bound to have been this is the era of you know social repression and lack of contraception so people it always comes out somewhere you know people always go in and go and do it um, and if they get found out they, they usually cover it up a bit better so 
It's a bit of a fudgy answer, that one, because you, you can't be sure either way, but almost certainly, I would imagine. So another thing that comes up pretty often is, you know, the idea of like these, these extramarital affairs. So, you know, theoretically, this is something that people are absolutely not supposed to do and nobody ever did. But of course, you know, when you look into people's individual lives, everybody's having affairs left and right. So how common were those, you know, you're, you're mentioning like the lady of the manor and the stable boy or whatever, but you know, people seem to almost accept it as, as normal. Like that's just what you do. Yeah. And, and, and I think that certainly was a factor too. Certainly, certainly probably more the middle and upper classes, you know, it, it kind of is, is this law's privilege sort of thing, you know, that the wife isn't going to say anything whilst he has it away with the maids, whether the maids want to or not. Um, and yeah, they would have had affairs as well, you know, willing affairs with other people as well. It's not all power play. Um, I think, yeah, it it was almost certainly just seen as a as a occupation. It was a hobby, I think, for some of these men. You know, these these dukes and whatever may have well have loved their duchesses, but they're probably still having it away with the the maid downstairs because they saw it as their right. You know, this is the era where there is that level of the Lord's right to whatever and and the man's right to do what he pleases and it and it takes a strong woman to fight back against it I mean going back to Annabella Milbank and Byron I mean she she had the wherewithal to fight back a bit because she came from a moneyed family but you look at someone I'm going to I know we're running out of time so I'm going to run into another thing that you noted you wanted to talk about is um Harriet Wilson and her the courtesan because obviously she had affairs well she was being paid with an awful lot of people who were married you know they of course they, they were married and they were hiring her on the side or paying her to be their their temporary woman and that's how she made her money because she produced her diaries which obviously people pays a lot of those cues out of the streets for her diary when the publisher brought that out but she was really hoping to make the money on her potential victim shall we say paying her off first so um there was plenty of people there were plenty of people doing that and and trying not to get caught and then you'd get the odd aberration of like someone like harriet who had the balls to say actually i'm going to tell everyone about this because you're all sleeping with me behind your wife's back Interestingly, Harriet's sister, Sophia, went into the same business, but she got her man. She married Lord Berwick and she helped him found Attingham Park, which is just down the road from me. And I walk my dogs in it all the time. And yeah, and and it's um, Lady Sophia Berwick was Harriet Wilson's sister and she was the courtesan. She 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 was uh, Lord Berwick was one of her clients, as far as I can make out. But she married him and and the house, it's literally a couple of miles from my house, um, is massive. It's got, I've been inside it and there's a whole wing that was Lady Berwick's wing. And and looking at it now, knowing this is Sophia Wilson, you know, Dubochet they were actually, they were the Dubochets. Um, it's, it's a bit fa- fa- vague as to where the, the Wilson comes in. But um, yeah, and, and this was this courtesan and she founded this massive stately home that's just down the road from my house. And I look at it and you think, well, it works sometimes, you know, it did work. And presumably that was that did start out as a relationship of convenience, but must have ended up a, as some kind of love match because they, they clearly, you know, liked each other enough to build this massive house. I mean, look up Attingham Park if you get a minute, because it's, it's amazing. Um and yeah, she's got her own wing and everything. So um, it 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 happened. But yeah, they were doing it all over the place, as they always were. Mm-hmm. 
My goodness. I, I love Sophia's story. So interesting. I've come across that a couple times before, but I will definitely look up that place they built together. That's incredible. Clearly that worked out for her, you know, um, although one of the things that comes up a lot in, uh, in these period dramas and Regency romances, you know, like the Duke is always held up as this sort of great romantic hero. You know, they're, they're always, you know, like supernaturally handsome and morally superior and all this stuff. But what were Dukes actually like? Would you like want to date one? At the time, you probably would. If you were in context, you probably would because he was a duke to our art because then that would be your aim. You know, he would be a duke. What we have to remember is they wouldn't have looked like that. They wouldn't have been that clean. They wouldn't have had teeth like that. We didn't have dentists back then. You know, people would have had rotten teeth and, and bad hair. And, you know, we didn't have all the glossiness that you see on all these things. They certainly would have been pomaded and, you know, and, and smart, but it wouldn't have been how we feel it's going to be. Um, but, yes, yeah, certainly, same as some people would do today, the fact that they are a duke would make them a worthy target. You know, it wouldn't matter um it's like in the 70s I, I, I'm quite old and I remember growing up in the 70s and Prince Charles in the UK being quite the bachelor you know and it was all over the news as to who was going to snag Prince Charles I mean look at him I wouldn't want to marry him. I wouldn't touch him with a barge pole but <laughs> it was there's my anti-monarchist coming out there um <laughs> but it, it, it's that's nothing to do with him being a monarchy it, it, people just fancied him because he was a prince do you know what I mean it didn't matter what he looked like he was a prince and it's the same back then isn't it you're we're in the territory of mothers you know the Bennett's mother trying to marry her daughters off to the duke the duke would be the prize so yeah you would want to for cultural and social reasons for personal and physical and attraction reasons probably not Probably not. Yeah, one of the things I always think of, uh, it, actually in the, the great introduction to Harriet Wilson's memoirs, um, the author is talking about a lot of the, the kind of people that she knew at the time. And a lot of these people were, you know, they were like the nobility and mm -hmm. all the men were just so badly behaved, you know, like they were trying to steal each other's mistresses. They're having affairs on the side. One of them, I wish I could remember his name, but they said that like he filed his teeth into points so he could whistle better for some reason. Mm -hmm. Like, Anyway, it's just like awful, weird stuff. And terrible people. Like terrible people, yeah. you know, yeah. but not, not at all like what we imagine, you know, not like, uh, you know, like the guys in Bridgerton, they don't look like that, you know? No, but they would have looked more like Harriet Wilson's re relaying, you know, and, and things like they would have, if, if they've got a woman and that she thought she thinks she's in love with him, she thinks this is Marvel's world together and he gets bored and passes her on to his mate, you know, same as happened to Emma Hart. So, or his uncle, yeah. <laughs> or his uncle, or his elderly uncle, you know, this happens, you know, and, and you, you see it in the monarchy where a king dies and, and the 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 widowed queen is expected to marry his younger brother, you know, and things like that. We've always done things really weird in this country, you know. It's, it's we're just weird, inherently weird, and um, it, it it it's always been done that thing of holding control. You know, you've got the few little people at the top, and they want to hold on the control, and usually it's men, and usually the women are seen as the disposable elements. So. It, it is unfortunate. I try not to let the feminist flag sort of drown everything, but um, it's hard not to in this sort of era because women are a commodity, you know, whether they're Harriet or Emma or whatever, they are a commodity a lot of the time. Um, and a lot of the stories in, in the book, it's about women being commodities for the people, whether it's men or business or whatever. So, um, yeah, I wouldn't want to touch any of those dukes. Thank you very much. 
No, no, we're good. <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of happier in this era, to be honest with you. So I know we're almost out of time. So there's one more thing I have to ask you about. And it wasn't the whole chapter. It was just one mention, but it really stood out to me. Portable chamber pots. <laughs> what on earth? Who thought that was a good idea? The Bordeloos, yeah. Like, <laughs> you know, they're called the Bordeloos. Do you know what? They came from practicality. Somebody didn't just invent that. That came from, now I'm not sure how true this is, but I think it's um, Louis the Fourteenth used to give such long speeches and nobody was allowed to leave the room while he was speaking. So the ladies would, and they had huge frocks, so they would take a saucepan and they would put it under the dress so they could just pee where they stood because that it was better than offending the king. I can't imagine the noise of women peeing into a saucepan. From, Everyone from would really hear it. Like yeah, it would just it, echo. It would, it would. <laughs> but, but it came from necessity. So the French, this is a, and then it became very French and fancy because the porcelain manufacturers realised there was a trade to be had here. So they made these amazing sort of look like shoeies that you can buy now, these jugs that you could hook under your skirts. I'm doing the action, can you see? And, um, <laughs> and pee into the jug and then put it on the floor and hopefully not knock it over while you walked away. And um, yeah, so and then they realised that they became very useful for carriage journeys. So it was all Louis XIV's fault, but actually probably for a good, a good invention for women, because can you imagine cystitis otherwise? You know, right. you wouldn't have been able, you'd have had to hold it for hours because apparently he really could bore on. And um, so, yeah, so they peed in saucepans and then somebody decided they could, you know, gussy this up a bit and they made nice little ceramic tubs and he had a handle on it. It looked like a giant gravy jug. Oh, my goodness. I'm trying to picture it, this. It's kind it of difficult. It looked like a giant gravy jug and you sort of wedged it between your legs and you had a pee because, of course, you wouldn't have been wearing knickers at that point. They were just open, right? you know bloomers so yeah it, it it i mean i could do with one sometimes sat in motorway traffic i mean it'd be really handy <laughs> wouldn't it oh <laughs> for sure and of course at the time they didn't have a lot of um public toilets for women did they there well, weren't a lot of places that you could go there weren't public toilets they just didn't exist generally they just didn't because men can go pee up, up a hedge or something or tuck around the corner um and and if you took a dump in the street there was so much of it there anyway that people wouldn't notice so and of course it was harder for women so yeah so that so it started with saucepans and ended up with chamber pots but portable chamber pots but borderloos they're called yeah absolutely amazing incredible. things oh my gosh with that <laughs> with that great image violet thank you so much for joining us where can we find you uh com is my website i am violet fenn on all social media come say hi i'll talk to anybody as we know um i know genuinely i love people so come chat to me um yeah and, I, and i'm gobby online so come and come and talk awesome thank you so much violet oh my goodness thank you can't wait until your me. next book awesome <laughs> thank you once again, we'd like to thank Violet for stopping by. Secrets and Scandals in Regency Britain is out now, and you can find Violet at sexdeathrockandroll.com. Photos from today's show will be up on our Instagram at Dirty Sexy History, and this week on Patreon, we also have our video interview with Violet. You can find that at patreon.com slash dirtysexyhistory. Which, of course, leads me to thank our superstar patrons. Thank you so much to Melanie Baker, Michael Beckwith, Bethany Bennett, Andy Christopher, Charlotte Collings, Rachel Cooney, Ayana DaCosta, Michelle Dunbar, James Finch, Adriana Herrera, Howard David Ingham, Emma Young, Miriam Caceres, Janine Meberg, Jessica Miller, Shannon Roth, Lily Sire-Lewis, 
I.C. Sedgwick, Kelly Simon, and Sylvia Van Eyck. If you would like to support the show, you can find us at patreon.com slash dirtysexyhistory. And as always, if you enjoy the show, please rate, review, and subscribe. Or you can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Dirty Sexy History. If you'd like to contact us or read more posts from our six years of archives, check out our website at DirtySexyHistory.com. Thank you guys so much for tuning in once again, and we'll see you next time. Dirty Sexy History is an independent podcast by Jessica Kale and Dr. John Jenkins. You can find us at DirtySexyHistory.com.